everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking about religious liberty in Canada, which is a subject, of course, of growing concern to many Canadians and many Christians. This subject demands a lot of expertise because the law surrounding religious liberty is complicated. Different cases obviously have different implications. And to get some expertise and some insight on this issue, I contacted my friend Albertos Polizagopoulos, who runs the Acacia Group, which is a legal firm that deals with a wide variety of legal matters. I actually work with the Acacia Group doing some communications on some cases. Albertos, just to give you an idea of his expertise, has appeared before various administrative tribunals and courts, including the Ontario, Alberta, and New Brunswick Human Rights Tribunals, the Canadian Industrial Relations Board, the Provincial Courts of Ontario and Nova Scotia, the Superior Courts of Ontario, Nova Scotia, Manitoba, and British Columbia, the Divisional Court of Ontario, the Court of Appeals for Ontario, Alberta, Nova Scotia, and British Columbia, the Tax Court of Canada, the Federal Court of Canada, the Federal Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court of Canada, and that on multiple occasions. That just gives you a bit of an idea of the sorts of cases he's pursued and why he has expertise in this particular area. So in this conversation, we go over religious liberty in Canada, what threats face Canadian churches and Canadian religious organizations next, and what Canadian Christians can do to prepare. Here's that conversation. Well, to start off the conversation, before we get into a a whole bunch of different stuff and some cases that you've been working on, I guess a lot of our listeners will want to know what the state of religious freedom actually is in this country. Because, of course, freedom has been one of the primary talks of conversation during the recent leadership race in Alberta. It's been a primary topic of conversation in the recent conservative leadership race. There's a lot of people who use the word, but there's very few people who can break it down and say, this is specifically where religious freedom is being attacked. This is where Christians need to be aware. This is what the current legal status quo is. So maybe you could start off by kind of sharing some of your expertise on on where Canada is at right now in 2022. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So I've been practicing law since 2008, and my practice has primarily been charter litigation, so constitutional litigation. And my personal expertise and most of my practice was matters related to specifically religious freedom. Over the course of my career, we've seen a lot of different ways that religious freedom is being choked or curtailed. And right now, what we're seeing, or at least what I think we're seeing, is a clampdown on freedom of expression in the religious context. So you, you, can, you can be a Christian, you can be you know, an Orthodox Jew, you can be a Hindu, you just can't really talk about it in the public square. And some examples of that is, you know, the Canada summer jobs controversy from a few years ago was initially related to the abortion issue, but that quickly changed into a religious freedom issue. And so you'll recall, Jonathan, and I suspect some of your listeners as well, that in 2018, the Trudeau government modified the Canada summer jobs program, which is just a federal grant that organizations can apply for to help fund student jobs over the summer. And it's open to all kinds of groups, including religious groups and churches and advocacy groups and so on. And in 2018, the Trudeau government implemented a new eligibility requirement requiring all applicants to attest to the fact that the core mandate of the organization and the job that would receive funding respected Charter of Rights and Freedoms rights, including women's reproductive rights, which the program defined as the right to abortion. There's no such right in Canada. Abortion is not illegal. 
which means you can do it. It's not like the right to protest. There's no positive right to abortion in Canada. So that upset a lot of groups, and particularly the pro-life and, and Christian groups. And so some of the groups that had been intending to apply for a Canada Summer Jobs Grant or who had been applying for them over several years just chose not to apply that year. Some chose to apply and cross out that wording, and then some just didn't check the box making the attestation. And so there was a big public controversy, a national controversy, and you had a whole whack of non-pro-lifers supporting the pro-life position. It was actually, you know, quite an encouraging moment for pro-lifers because for the first time, at least in my involvement in the pro-life movement, we had secular groups saying there's no abortion restriction at all in Canada. There is no law in Canada. We had been saying that for years and we were called liars. For the first time, again, in, in years, we had major newspapers and news publications saying the only other countries with no abortion law are North Korea and China. And I think China now has one, but they didn't at the time. And we had been saying that as a movement for years and, and nobody took it seriously. So it was quite interesting from that perspective. But as a result of the public backlash, the government backtracked on that and removed the abortion attestation and in 2019 introduced a different one. And that attestation was that as an employer, you do not discriminate or harass your employees. You provide a workplace free of harassment and discrimination. And so a number of groups that had been not approved in 2018 got approved in 2019. In 2018, I challenged the Canada Summer Jobs Program on behalf of a number of groups, including Redeemer University in Hamilton, Ontario. And for procedural reasons, that case and several other cases were put on hold pending the outcome of an, a different case. But in 2019, Redeemer University reapplied. And I can talk about this because it's all public knowledge. It's all been out in the courts. So in 2019, Redeemer University applied again, and they checked the box. They made the attestation that they provide a workplace free of harassment and discrimination. And so a couple of months go by, and then they get a response from Service Canada, which was the federal government department administering the program. And they got told, well, they got asked, rather, to clarify their application. And the Service Canada email said something along the lines of, you have failed to demonstrate that you provide a workplace free of har harassment and discrimination. Please do so, otherwise you'll be deemed ineligible or disqualified. So Redeemer University sends in its 35 or 40 page anti-discrimination document, which is you know, a theological masterpiece in many ways. And so their document basically said, look, we're a Christian university. We believe that everyone is created in the image of God and everyone is therefore worthy of dignity and respect. And now I'm paraphrasing, but it's something along the lines of, however, as a Christian community and, and institution, we will take steps to maintain our religious character and integrity. It was something as benign as that. I mean, that wasn't the exact wording. So, okay, they responded to Service Canada and the application goes through the process. And again, several months later, they get a, a correspondence from Service Canada saying, you've been declined, you've been denied because you failed to demonstrate that you provide a workplace free of harassment and discrimination. So we brought an application for judicial review, which is when you ask the court to review a decision made by a governmental body. And in the course of the litigation, what came out was that Redeemer was denied because somebody at Service Canada had gone and done a, they called it a background check. So they basically Googled Redeemer and went and pulled up whatever they could. They denied the application on the basis of three documents. One was in an article in, a, in an online newspaper called Religion News Source about Trinity Western University's bid for a law school. And in the article, there was a paragraph referencing how other schools in Canada, including Redeemer University, had similar codes of conduct, codes of conduct that their students had to adhere to. The second and third 
were university documentation from previous years, from, from years back, talking about how their student has a community, co- they don't call it a community covenant, but it's a covenant basically to act and conduct themselves within biblical standards. And so these were documents from several years back, but they never gave Redeemer University an opportunity to respond or to clarify because Redeemer University requires that their faculty and their students adhere to this code of conduct, but not the summer students that are hired for the summer job. That was an assumption the government employees made that was wrong, and they were never given an opportunity to explain or clarify. The law in Ontario, there's a human rights code in Ontario which prohibits discrimination in hiring unless you're an academic or a religious organization, which Redeemer obviously was. So we took it to court. We won on procedural fairness grounds. So the court concluded that Redeemer was denied the opportunity to respond. But in a court decision, there's several parts. So the first part is the recitation of the facts. The second part is here are the questions that the court needs to consider. The third part is here are our re- our de- here's our decision. And then the fourth part is here are the reasons for our decision. So the fourth part, the reasons for decision, is not binding in law, but it's the rationale that that decision maker used. And in that portion of the decision, the court slams the government. So what happened with Redeemer University and the Canada Summer Jobs Program was, sure, you can be a Christian organization, you can hold your beliefs, you can require your community members to adhere to those beliefs, you can require certain staff to adhere to those beliefs, you just can't talk about it if you want to participate in the Canada Summer Jobs Program. And we've seen a lot of those types of situations where it's not a religious group being targeted for being religious. It's a religious group being targeted for speaking out or speaking certain ways. This isn't just a religion, a freedom of religion issue. This is a power of government issue. So we saw that obviously with COVID. You've got, you had doctors being disciplined by their bodies or losing their licenses altogether together for questioning public health officials. So this is becoming a, a big problem in Canada. It's basically anti-blasphemy laws, but we're seeing it in the religious context as well. So yeah, you can still be a Christian organization. You can still be a Christian church. You can still preach the gospel, just not to everybody and not in all cases. And the perfect example of that, of course, is Bill C-4, which outlaws conversion therapy. And conversion therapy is so broadly defined that it most likely includes pastoral counseling, even if it's somebody seeking it. It could potentially include a sermon from the pulpit on sexual morality. So again, you can be a church, you can preach the gospel, you just can't preach the gospel to a certain group of people. You can condemn sin, but you can't condemn certain sin. And you can give people a pathway to redemption from their sin, unless it's this particular sin. So again, we're clamping down on the way religious people are able to communicate. And I think that's really what, where we're at today. And I think that's where the future is going to take us is we're going to see more of these anti-blasphemy laws, more of these litmus tests. You can apply for this grant, but you've got to check this box. You You can have a law school, but you can't have this code of conduct. You can provide biblical counseling, but not to people with certain proclivities or attractions if your counseling is going to lead them away from that or encourage them to walk away from that type of behavior. It's more of a, we're not going to shut down churches, but we're not really going to let you operate the way you need to operate. Now, if you talk about religious freedom in a Canadian context, now, those of us in Canada who keep track of this kind of news specifically will have roughly the picture that you're laying out without the details. But if you talk to somebody internationally, so if you talk to somebody in Europe or the United States, the two things they're going to think of when they hear about religious liberty are, A, the burning of all those churches in the wake of the residential school graves thing, and second of all, the pastors in Alberta getting arrested, churches getting shut down, churches in multiple provinces 
services, getting fined for holding services or not restricting the number of people attending those services. And in some ways, those are kind of unique and specific examples that were related to specific issues. But for those who are wondering, the fining of pastors, obviously a religious freedom issue, the arrest of pastors, obviously a religious liberty issue. But are those issues sort of specific to the COVID regime? And we can now, you know, be pretty certain they've gone away. Or are those are were those indicators of a more deeply rooted problem that we should still be concerned about? Well, I think we should absolutely be concerned about that, but I don't think it's necessarily or solely from a religious freedom perspective, because we saw restaurants getting shut down. We saw bars getting shut down. So if they had only been shutting down churches, that would be a huge problem. But in some provinces, they restricted all religious services while allowing bars and restaurants to operate. So in those contexts, that would be more of a a direct attack on religious freedom, I think. The way COVID was handled, I think, should scare us. And not so much because the government took advantage of it. You expect the government to take advantage of it. But that the churches so willingly went along with it, right? Like you had churches that were allowed to meet and still weren't meeting because they got used to doing it on Facebook Live. So yeah, I think it should be concerning. I think that was a huge shift in culture because historically you had the churches in the West concerned about government. You have this whole concept of separation of church and state, which isn't a legal concept in reality, but you have this whole concept that is used to tell the church to stay out of the public sphere, when in reality it was born out of the church telling the government to stay out of the church sphere. And COVID just really messed all of that up. So we used to have these very clear lines. Yes, we obey the authorities as Christians. Yes, we obey the law, but they're not going to come in and and make ecclesiastical or liturgical decisions. They're not going to tell us how to conduct a service. But then some governments did, and most churches went along with it. So, you know, if you're a person of faith, you should be angry with the government, but you might also consider your own church's leadership in that, right? Right. So, yeah, we should definitely be concerned because it's a cultural shift. And that's a really interesting kind of thread to pull on, because we've had this in a number of different churches in Europe. I'm thinking of Germany and also the Netherlands of increasingly the government kind of getting involved directly in church decisions because those church decisions now inevitably apply to groups that are considered specifically and specially protected under law. So now it's pretty much anybody who identifies as LGBT. And we've seen this with a few other pastors, and there's been some kind of ominous indicators in Canada where, you know, you have activists pulling clips from sermons and publicizing them. We saw this happen to a priest in Calgary a couple of years back, and and I suspect this kind of thing is going to become a lot more common. You know, you, you kind of publicize these statements online, you go to the C- CBC, you go to CTV, you go to Global, you say, can you believe that pastor or priest X said this? You know, how can they still get charitable status and all of that? What is the status quo right now in Canada in terms of the government actually interfering in the inner workings of churches besides the already mentioned example of conversion therapy limiting some pastoral advice and counseling? Yeah, so for now, that's the main issue. So the main interference from the government is with respect to what they call conversion therapy. And conversion therapy is, again, so broadly defined to that it would include pastoral counseling. It could include a sermon. So that's the main example now. There aren't any other, as far as I'm aware, there's no other pattern. So again, this government came out and said, we're going to revoke charitable status I don't remember how they worded it, but it was specifically to target pregnancy care centers. It's part of this anti-blasphemy approach as well, right? You can have views on abortion. You just can't have the pro-life view. You can't be anti-abortion, not if you want to have charitable status. If they proceed with that, it's not going to take long for that to extend to the church and to other faith groups with charitable status. So that's what's coming next is the revocation of charitable status. 
I don't think it'll be limited to abortion issues. I think it's going to be a revisitation of the Trinity Western thing. So if you have a biblical view of sexual morality, you're going to lose charitable status. I think that's in the future. You know, it depends on when the next federal election is and what happens there. But I think in the current trajectory we're on, that's not too far away. And that's a really interesting issue. And the reason I'm less optimistic than some other people are is just because of the data that I'm looking at, right? So Canada is more post-Christian than than the United States, certainly, where a lot of of Canadian conservatives and Christians get their media because there are actually conservative outlets and places like the Daily Wire that a lot of people engage with. But if you look at the the raw hard data, right, one of the global news polls that indicated that 16% of Canadians say they hold like deep religious convictions that they actually act on on EFC studies said that 11% of Canadians engage in even remotely regular attendance at any place of worship. So not just churches, but that would be like, you know, churches, gurdwars, mosques, synagogues, which means that if you're looking at the number of people who actually hold to an Orthodox, specifically biblical perspective on these things, we're talking not just a minority, but a really tiny minority. And because those minorities are usually clustered into communities, so I'm part of a Dutch Reformed community, there's a couple of, you know, quite large and tight Ukrainian Catholic communities in the Brampton area. Like everybody's kind of clustered together. And so they often get this idea that we have a lot more influence and there are way more of us than there actually are based on the numbers. And the most disturbing poll I saw recently earlier this year was a poll done by Angus Reed on the number of people who now view Christians negatively and that number is like starting to inch up to the halfway mark of Canadians who just fundamentally view evangelicals and Catholics as a negative influence on society as I believe the way that the poll was worded exactly and of course part of the reason for that is that the only time Christians are ever covered in the press is not when they're you know running a soup kitchen or a hospital or you know cleaning up trash, you know, the local Christian school here, you know, regularly cleans up the trash on the roadways and things like that. It's only ever when you get a case like the ones you've been referring to, like Redeemer doesn't allow LGBT people to, you know, to, to, to practice their attractions or like the only time you ever hear anything about the tiny minority of Canadian Christians who adhere to biblical views, it's because they're in conflict with the views now held by the majority of Canadians, which are adherence to the, the sexual revolution, to revolution rather than revelation. And this is kind of creating the conditions where I almost fear it's inevitable. Christians just aren't understood, right? When we bring up the freedom of conscience, how does that work when most people don't understand what a conscience is or how to define it? Right. No, that's interesting. That's very interesting. I know I'm a lawyer and you wanted me to talk about the law, but what's really concerning here is the cultural shift. If we look back to the previous federal government, if that government had excluded people of a particular faith group or political opinion on a political issue, they would have been crucified in the media. But this government gets away with it. And not only do they get away with it, they double down after it happened. The only reason they can is because Canadians let them. So what happened in the last 10 years? What happened in the last 30 years? I I don't know. That's a cultural question. So that's something you're better equipped to answer than I am. But something has happened. I used to say the law shaped culture in Canada, because if you look at all of the big social issues that social conservatives have, quote unquote, lost, each and every one of them, with the exception of marijuana being legalized, has been done through the courts, not parliament. And so I'm talking about abortion, of course, I'm talking about same-sex marriage, euthanasia, prostitution, all of these big shifts in the culture occurred following court decision. And so I wasn't around for the same-sex marriage cases. I wasn't in practice yet, but 
I recall seeing somewhere at some point that just before the Supreme Court had released its decision in the same-sex marriage reference, which was a review of federal legislation legalizing same-sex marriage, which was in response to court decisions striking down, down the prohibition on same-sex marriage. Just before that period of time, the majority of Canadians, and it was probably a small majority, but the majority of Canadians were in favor of traditional marriage. And within a year of that shift in the law, the overwhelming majority of Canadians were in favor of same-sex marriage. The, the law, parliament, and the courts were shaping culture. And I think now it, we might be seeing the reverse, right? So I regularly have conversations with potential clients or clients about challenging certain laws or certain decisions or defending their rights in certain contexts. And more and more what I'm saying is the law's on your side. I think the facts are on your side, but it's really going to come down to the judge. And is the judge prepared to stick to the law or is the judge going to go with his or her gut and his or her personal views? I don't want to slam the judiciary because we have a lot of good judges out there, but increasingly there's pressure on these judges to go with the flow, I think. You would need a very principled judge to go against the grain on these cultural issues. And I think that's one of the reasons we haven't seen any successful COVID challenges, because you would need a very principled, courageous judge to go against the narrative. Whereas I think it used to be a top-down model, the courts and parliament would shape culture. I think it's now the other way around. Culture is shaping parliament and the courts. And culture should shape parliament, that makes sense, but the courts should be completely independent. Yeah. And I, I fear they may no longer be. I didn't actually know that about the polls on same-sex marriage in Canada. I know that's exactly what happened in the U.S., but three years, not a year. It was 60-40 in favor of traditional marriage, and it flipped in three years to 60-40 for same-sex marriage. So you see the same sort of interplay taking place. But then then culture also is an enormous reinforcer. And that's why I wonder specifically about the charitable status or tax-exempt status of, of churches. You'd know which legal phraseology is more accurate. Because you see sort of these trial balloons get thrown up every six months or so. There's been a couple of stories where, you know, you'll have, you know, somebody at a Baptist church with a same-sex partner who discovers to their horror that that Baptist church is Baptist and still believes what Baptists have always believed, and that this means it precludes includes her relationship specifically in a place of authority. And then the media covers it as, you know, sort of breaking news, you know, 2001 years now, they've all held to the same views. And somebody always says something in there. And I've noticed in the last three paragraphs of the article, I've seen this on CTV, CBC, they kind of say, I can't believe the government rewards these people for their bigotry by giving them tax exempt status, or it's time to remove their tax exempt status. And I feel like for me, watching it from a cultural perspective, the only thing preventing this from happening is that the right case has happened yet. Like you just need a case that catches public attention in a particular way, and then they'll kind of move in to do it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you might be right on that. I mean, it's interesting that you raise this because just this morning I got an email from a client with that, you know, it wasn't a church, but it was, we got an email from a journalist that says they're going to do this story. What do we do? And so I think these things are going to be creeping up a lot more. And I think you're right. The more they do it, once they find the really good case, the really sexy case from their perspective, mm -hmm. that's when they're going to take it all the way. They're going to find, you know, let's take conversion therapy. They're not going to prosecute a pastor or an elder or a priest who has a member of the church approach them and say, you know what, pastor, I've been struggling with this issue for years and I know it's wrong. I believe the Bible says it's wrong and I don't want to continue doing this, but I just can't stop. I don't think that's the case they're going to prosecute first. I think the case they're going to prosecute first is the one where the parents of the 13-year-old haul him or her to the church 
and an exorcism is performed. I think you're exactly right. Is once they find the quote unquote right case, the worst case essentially, that's the one they're gonna they're gonna take. That's the charitable status they're gonna revoke. And we saw this in the U.S. with Bob Jones University, right? When Trinity West when Trinity Western University was trying to get their law school, they were being compared to Bob Jones all the time. And Trinity Western University had lots of gay students. And in fact, they had gay students provide evidence saying, I went to Trinity Western as a gay student. I felt loved. I felt welcomed. I didn't feel judged. I had a great experience. And Bob Jones, of course, was prohibiting interfaith marriages. So two very different issues. But because it serves a certain narrative, they're conflated and convoluted. You know, I don't think it was an accident that Bob Jones was the case in the U.S. where this happened, where the charitable tax status was indeed revoked. Thankfully, I haven't heard that for universities or churches in Canada yet. But like I said earlier, and like you're saying, I think it's coming. It's only a matter of time. And once they find the right case, they're going to do that case, see how the public responds. But it's going to be such an ugly case that the public will probably respond with affirmation. And then once the doors are open, it's going to be hard to close them. There's a really important lesson in there that I don't think Christians think about often enough. I've privately communicated this to principals and educators and people quite often because there's this assumption, I think, that a lot of Christians hold that we may face persecution for our sincerely held beliefs at some point. And I don't actually think that's the way it will start. I suspect that we'll be persecuted or more accurately, perhaps prosecuted for not being Christian enough. So they're not going to go to the school, as you said, that just holds to biblical orthodoxy and we stand on scripture and say sort of here I stand I can do no other what they're going to do is they're going to find a gay kid who was actually bullied and was treated like garbage and the administration didn't intervene or it was kind of ignored and that this kid actually shares a real experience and that that's the case that ends up getting GSAs in every Alberta school or you know that's just that's just one example they're going to attach their next round of policies to a face but I do suspect a lot of Christians could get a caught off guard because they think that we're going to get persecuted for being too Christian as opposed to not Christian enough. Yeah, and I think you're right. When I advise churches or schools or universities or faith communities, we often get these situations where they're trying to find the middle ground between orthodoxy and progressivism. And like as a church, you can't really be in the middle. You talked about a gay kid. Obviously, a gay kid shouldn't be bullied in any situation. But if you're, let's say, a church and there's a discussion as to whether or not you should be an affirming church or an orthodox church, and these discussions are happening all over the place, they're happening in several church denominations right now, but you've got to pick a lane. You can't be in the middle. You're either all in on biblical inerrancy or you're not. You're either affirming or you're orthodox. You can't be in that middle. That's where people get in trouble. But the problem is a lot of people try, a lot of organizations and communities try and be in that middle because they're afraid of the phone call from the CBC or the CTV van pulling into the church parking lot. They're afraid of being canceled on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. The way you framed it of they think they're going to be persecuted for being too Christian, but in reality, they're going to be persecuted because they're not Christian enough. I think that's exactly right. From a legal perspective, most of the time, you're better protected if you're more clear in, in what you believe and who you are, right? I'll give you a very simple example. Years ago, I was speaking at a conference of private Christian school principals, and there was one fellow there that said, and we were talking about open schools versus closed schools, 
Of course, that means the closed schools, uh, which are called covenantal schools, require either the student and or the parent to be Christians of some sort. Generally, it's a statement of faith will set out whether, you know, you qualify for admission, uh, but sometimes it will be specific to a congregation or a denomination. And so from a legal perspective, if you want to be able to exclude people, you have to have a clear definition of who is allowed in your school. And, you know, my recommendation is always, if you're going to tell a family that they can't enroll their kids because they're a same-sex couple, you've got to have clear reasons why you're, you're making that an eligibility requirement. And so the safest thing to do is to tie a particular church or denomination. And I had one person in the room say, well, we require everybody, all the students of our school, to have at least one parent be a member in good standing of this particular church. And I said, well, that's great, because if there's ever one of these issues, it becomes a church issue, right? Church discipline issue. And he said, well, the problem is we have an exception for our staff. So our staff don't need to be members of the particular church, and we allow our staff to send their kids to our school. And I said, well, then your policy is not a policy, because they were trying to be in that middle ground, right? And this was obviously much less offensive than the stuff you're talking about. But consistency is key. And so I, I really like the way you framed it there in that we're not going to be persecuted for being too Christian. We're going to be persecuted for being not Christian enough. So with that in line, and you've done tons of cases, you've given private advice, you've been consulted a lot. What would you say are a number of things that churches, religious organizations, Christian schools should be especially careful for now in 2022, considering the current climate? I think the issues that you brought up related to the LGBT community is front and center right now in the culture, in the law. I think the cases we're going to see are going to be cases where there's a clash of gay rights versus religious rights. And I think there are people out there looking for those cases on the other side. Those are good stories. They'll probably get lots of clicks online. They'll get lots of likes on Facebook. And so people are out there looking for those cases. And so that's where we've got to be careful. And I think that's why churches, schools, other communities have to be clear on who they are, what they believe, and what you need to be in belief to be part of the community. The last thing I would say on that is a lot of these groups are, are charitable groups, and they're small groups, and they have limited funds. So they're reluctant to hire lawyers to help them. And I get it. Lawyers are expensive. But in the same way that these groups don't do their own tax filing, they shouldn't be DIYing their policies, their procedures, their human rights complaints, those kinds of things. No, I can't count the number of quotes I've seen in the media where I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Who let you open your mouth and say that? Yeah, exactly. That's the other thing. Don't talk to the media without strategic help, strategic advice. Yeah, and when you do, assume they're going to be hostile and never be fooled by somebody who's nice to you. That's exactly right. So be prepared is really what it is. Be on guard. For the Christians out there, the Bible tells us that, right? Peter tells us, be on guard, be prepared, always be ready to give a defense. You know, there's a roaring lion out there looking to devour you. And that roaring lion right now in Canada is the culture, the media, and in some cases, the government. So be aware, be on guard. That's my short answer. I was wondering if I could get your take on this, because one of the interesting things about Canada is that it's kind of known worldwide as a progressive country, right? The Telegraph referred to Canada as the world's first woke nation. Our euthanasia horror stories have kind of turned us into an international cautionary tale. We don't have any restrictions on abortion at all. We're more or less cutting edge on, on all of the LGBT movement's agenda items. And yet, when I break down the religious numbers in detail, right, and I just gave some 
some pretty depressing ones when it comes to to Christians. But there was this moment with the Canada Summer Jobs Program that you mentioned where I, I was attending meetings in Toronto and there was imams there and rabbis there. And it was sort of the first time we realized how many people it wasn't just that secular, you know, commentators were admitting there was no law on abortion. It was also the fact that it turns out there was a ton of people that the liberals just sort of assumed kept their mouths shut and voted for them who, when pushed into a corner, were like, no, actually, we're not going to sign off on that. Like, we're not going to talk about this 364, like four days of the year. But if you make us like sign on the dotted line and say, you know, I'm on board with all this stuff, that's when, sorry, we're forced to push back. And we have this going door to door through our pro-life organization. People in the immigrant communities, by and large, haven't bought into any of this stuff. I feel pretty comfortable saying that more people in Canada would hold to the same position I do on there are two genders and they match biological sex, would say that, you know, abortion is, if not wrong, extremely undesirable, not a positive thing, not a positive right, would be horrified by the idea of assisted suicide being offered to people with mental health issues. And even as a solution to suffering in old age, there's a lot of three generation homes in the greater Toronto area. And yet those people aren't functionally part of the movement that's fighting for religious liberty. They're not part at all of the pro-life movement, except in some notable instances. What's sort of interesting is that here and there, you see religious groups kind of banding together to defend rights. So in the UK, it's actually Orthodox Muslims that are doing most of the protests against infringement on parental rights in, in, in public schools. And just recently in Dearborn, Michigan, you had Muslim parents teaming up with Christian parents to protest the, the radicalization of the curriculum. Have you in your practice ever been approached by anybody to do a religious liberty issue that wasn't a Christian? And do you have any concept of why it might be that it seems to be Christians who are both the primary targets, but also seem to be the only primary voices on defending religious liberty? So I, you know, I can't get into who's approached me and who's not, but I can tell you that I've been involved in cases where non-Christian groups have been involved in pursuing religious freedom arguments or, or case law. So that's happening. And you're right, there is becoming more of a network. So it's becoming the religious freedom community, I guess you could call it, at least in legal spheres, is becoming more connected and more aligned. So that's encouraging. That's, that's a positive thing that's happening. Why is it that it's mostly Christian? I don't know the answer to that. I think people still view Canada, despite the stats you referred to earlier, people within Canada, I think, still view Canada as a primarily Christian country. And they still think that the Christians are the majority. And so when you have a clash of rights between a Christian and somebody else, well, the Christian is the underdog just because the narrative is that the Christian right now is in a position of power, when in reality, I don't think that's the case. So I think that's why you've got the Christian groups that are more mobilized and perhaps more engaged, because I think they're being targeted more. Right. No, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that brings us to Acacia, which is the legal firm that you founded. Now, some of my listeners will already know about your work because you've been involved in a lot of high profile cases involving issues that primarily concern Christians like religious liberty, like the pro-life issue, etc. But you recently started a firm that does a lot of this work very specifically. So maybe first start by telling us what Acacia means, what Acacia does and the story of how you founded it. Sure. So Acacia, it's called the Acacia Group, and we're primarily a law firm, but we do have a strategic communications division. So a lot of the times when I get these calls, it's because there's already a story that's gone viral. And so we've got lots of journalists and media knocking on the door. And so we found that it was helpful to have people on our team to help navigate these issues with the clients. And in my practice, before I founded Acacia, I was in another law firm. I was a partner in a different law firm. 
and I would hire out consultants to do this. And it just made so much more sense to have everybody on the same team. And this came out of the one situation where I was providing legal advice and the client had already retained the public relations firm giving all communications advice. And the communications advice that they were receiving in my mind and in my view was not very good. And it was not complementing the legal advice. <laughs> right. In my mind, it made so much more sense to have a one-stop shop so that I was preparing an opinion, for example, for a client, I could call Peter who heads up our communications wing and say, well, here's what's happening. Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think of that? And then that gets resolved in one phone call instead of four or five meetings. So it's quicker, it's more efficient produces a more cohesive product and it's cheaper and easier for the client. That was the goal. And ultimately the vision is to have more of these added services within Acacia so we could be a one-stop shop for the church. So our clients are primarily Christian churches, denominations, dioceses, and other parachurch organizations like schools, colleges, universities, other charities, and so on. I mean, we have non-religious clients. We have religious clients that are not Christian but probably 90% of our clientele are, are Christian organizations or Christian-owned businesses and things like that. And the reason we did that is my practice at the time when I decided to start the firm was primarily churches and such organizations. And so I started it on January 1st, 2021. The decision to do it was made in the fall of 2020. And it's something I had wanted to do for a while, but you know, I never really kind of had the guts to pull the trigger and do it. I was comfortable in my old firm, was doing well, I had a good practice. Everything was comfortable. Everything was easy. But in fall of 2020, I had a personal family crisis and it was kind of now or never. Right. And so that's when I decided to do it. And, and we haven't looked back since and we've been growing ever since. So right now, our purpose and our vision is to serve the broader church in Canada. We're based out of Ottawa, but we have people all over Ontario. We have Peter, who I referred to earlier, is in Montreal and our clients our coast to coast. So our practice is national. So we have clients from BC to New Brunswick with Active Matters right now. What sort of stuff can you tell us about some of the things that you've done in the past? I know any ongoing cases are still private, but I know I've seen you quoted on the media. So is there anything you can tell us about some of the things that you've worked on since being founded? Well, I referred to the Redeemer Canada summer jobs case earlier. I was involved in the Trinity Western litigation, which a lot of people listening, I suspect, are aware of. There's nothing super exciting and sexy right now happening in terms of religious freedom in Canada, but we do have a case which I think will be, but if it's not, if it's not, it ought to be of interest to your people. And I think it ties back to the anti-blasphemy approach I was, I was talking about earlier. So we have a client right now who is a videographer. She is a Christian videographer. And if you're a videographer or photographer, your bread and butter are weddings. So her bread and butter were weddings. She also did commercial video production for businesses. So she'd do promo videos and things like that. But at one point, a year or two ago, she received a email from a woman saying, I, you know, are you available on this day for my wedding? And in the email, it was clear that it was going to be a same-sex wedding. And the response from the videographer was, I'm sorry, I, we don't do same-sex weddings. I think the way she said it was, we don't do homosexual weddings. So a little less compassionate, but still matter of fact, still polite. And so she's now facing a human rights complaint. She's had to shut down her business. She was just attacked on social media. She was harassed. She, her and her family had to leave their house for a while because of safety concerns. And she's ultimately had to shut down her business, but is still facing this human rights complaint. And the reason I say it ought to be of concern is she's not being, you know, if you want to use the word persecuted for being a Christian, 
she's being persecuted because she wouldn't produce a particular type of art. If you're a photographer and you say, I don't do nudes, well, nobody would say that's wrong. But if you're a videographer that says, I don't do same-sex weddings, all of a sudden you're being dragged through this process. And with the human rights complaint, oftentimes the process itself is a punishment. So it could take years. It already has been dragging on for years already, and it could cost tens and tens of thousands of dollars. I did one on behalf of a small private Christian school a few years ago. I took over halfway through, and my bill was about $50,000. And the first lawyer's bill, who hadn't gotten them halfway through, had gotten just started, it was $50,000. So the school spent $100,000 in legal fees, and we won, but the process was the punishment, right? This was a school of 40 students. They didn't have $100,000 to blow on lawyers. So this poor videographer is now facing this issue. You know, I get why the, the couple would be offended, but I'm sure they were able to find another videographer. What we're seeing now, again, is you can be a artist and you can have views, but your religious views can't inform your art because if you do that, you're going to get in trouble. That's blasphemy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A final question. It's more of an advice question, but it's a question I get a lot. And I'm just kind of wondering what your take on it is as a lawyer. So let's take the videographer case, right? And some of our listeners will be familiar because I've done an interview with her in the past and it's a really compelling story. And one of the things that people are wondering now, as you said earlier in the podcast, that you can still be a Christian, but you can't talk about it. And when sort of your Christian views conflict with somebody else's views, you know, Christians are often in a negative position. And so if you've got a videographer, you've got a baker, you've got a photographer, run your way through the list of professionals where adherence to Christian views might put you into that sort of sticky situation. What would your advice to somebody be when they get called by a client who says, we're a gay couple, we, we would love to retain your services for, you know, a wedding cake or, or wedding photography or a wedding video? Because when people ask me, like, is this the hill to die on? I'm like, it's a good hill to die on in terms of like, you know, you need to stand up for your views, but you can also just find another reason to basically just say you're busy and just avoid the whole thing. What would you advise people to do in that context? Yeah, I'm nervous about that, Jonathan, just because I think it's dishonest. A lot of the times, these cases arise out of, you know, bad actors looking. It's a sting operation. They're looking to get you. And so they can get you. Like, let's say you're the videographer and they call you and they say, are you available on October 21st? And you say, I'm sorry, I'm not. They might get their friend to email you and say, are you available on October 21st? My husband and I are getting married on that day and we've heard great things about you. Or my fiance and I are getting married on that day and we've heard great things about you. And then if you say, yeah, I'm available, well, you just got caught. I wouldn't necessarily encourage people to try and find another reason unless you have a truthful reason. What I would say is if you're going to be in the service industry and there's certain types of services you're not prepared to provide, you got to think about that beforehand so you're not caught off guard. This doesn't just apply to same-sex weddings and things like that. This applies to lawyers. You might be a lawyer that does wills in the States, and you might be a pro-life lawyer that's against euthanasia. How are you going to handle somebody asking you to put in specific language about them being euthanized in their will or in their power of attorney? I don't think, you know, it's not my area of expertise. I don't think you can do that, and it would be legally binding. But you often have people ask for stuff in their will that can't be enforced. So are you, as a lawyer going to do that. If you're not, well, you got to think about that. And you got to think about how you're going to respond to that request because you want your response to be consistent, right? And that's the same whether you're a videographer that won't do same-sex weddings or a wills lawyer that won't talk about euthanasia in the client's will. You want to be consistent. So think about it and be proactive and get good advice and get good counseling from, you know, your pastor, your priest, your imam, whatever it is. 
think it through and be prepared so that you can answer confidently and consistently to those requests or those situations. You referenced uh, talking to the media. The worst thing people can do in terms of talking to the media is going in unprepared. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's the same thing here. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to go through all this stuff with us. No, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Alberto's Paul Zagopoulos. If you want to check out his work, go to acaciagroup.ca. That's acaciagroup.ca, acacia as in the tree. And if you know of anybody who needs these services, please do contact him. I hope you found this conversation helpful. And if you want to listen to other conversations like it on a wide range of issues relating to faith, life, and family, head over to lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can find the Van Maren Show there. Subscribe to future shows and listen to some of our past conversations. Thanks so much for your time this week. And we hope you'll tune in again next week.